2: Welcome to the Animal Voices Radio Show, Western Canada's only radio program on animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM Co-op Radio CFRO in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, on unceded Coast Salish territories. Today is Friday, November the 22nd, 2019. I am your host, Alison Cole, and I am joined here today by my co-host, Elise Jacobson. Hello. And our control room operator. Carol Davies McIntosh. good afternoon welcome everyone I'm excited about today's show because in the span of the next hour we will be covering a large variety of relevant animal advocacy and vegan lifestyle issues we have a packed show for you today our first interview will be with Camille Labchuk she is an animal rights lawyer and executive director of the nonprofit organization called animal justice which leads the legal fight for animals in Canada. Its lawyers work to pass strong new animal protection legislation, push for the prosecution of animal abusers, and fight for animals in court. I have so many questions about current legal animal rights issues in Canada, and the big one we'll be leading with is the state of the fur industry in our country. That interview is coming up in about eight minutes, so please do stay tuned. Several weeks ago I received a book in the mail that caught my attention instantly because I was already aware of the story that this book told, and right away I thought we must have him, the author, on the show. So I've spent this past week devouring this book, which is entitled Walking with Petey The Dog Who Saved My Life by Eric O'Gray. Eric O'Gray is a man who came out of the depths of depression and despair as a lonely, morbidly obese person who one day had an epiphany and wanted to completely change his life and that is exactly what he did within the first week of this decision he switched his diet from fast food to homemade plant-based foods and adopted a dog from a local shelter Petey who would change his life forever Eric, in this journey, not only lost 150 pounds and became physically healthy, but he also found love and an ironclad bond with his rescue dog, Petey, who, turns out, was the rescuer of Eric. We'll be speaking with Eric O'Gray as our feature interview on today's show to share with us his story and messages of learned wisdom. Fair warning, this is such a touching story, and I may cry. You're, you're my backup personally. Yeah. <laughs> that interview is coming up at 12.35 p.m. and you won't want to miss it.
3: Yeah, and we just had a little local news story that we want to talk about briefly today. A powerful odor wafting across the road from a poultry farm is again creating problems at King Traditional Elementary in Abbotsford, according to the CBC. The stench had improved since the issue came up about a year ago, according to Shannon Godet, a parent at the school. But since about mid-September, it's been back. Uh, Godet says it's a smell like I've never experienced, and I've been around a lot of different farms my entire life. At first, parents thought that it was rotting carcasses. That's how putrid and horrible the smell was. She said people at the school have become nauseous, had headaches, and had respiratory issues due to the odor. The company, 93 Land Company, declined an interview request from CBC News, but said in a statement it uses the property as a poultry farm and poultry litter storage facility. Godet says it's the manure that's creating the foul smell, which she describes as toxic as it's being stored under an open-air canopy that releases fumes she said her daughter complains that her head and stomach hurt when she's exposed to the odor so this is pretty disturbing um having school kids exposed to something like this. You know, the the news story frames it as, you know, just kind of a bad smell, uh, at least in the headline and stuff, but it's obviously more than that. Um, it's toxic substances. It's toxic odors that
2: are yes. that these children are breathing in every single day at their school. And it's, um, you know, this is in Abbotsford, which is, as we know, here in the Lower Mainland, that's the Fraser Valley, that's farming ki- the country, Yeah, right? exactly. There's a lot of factory farms in that area. Right. And, um, you know, when I read about this story yesterday, what I could really imagine what this must be like for the kids because of my experience when I was at the Excelsior Hog Farm earlier yeah. this year in Abbotsford. So, uh, you know, as when we, a whole, as you know, a few hundred of us went to this farm. And as soon as we got off the bus, the stench of of uh, ammonia was just totally permeating through the air and it was difficult to breathe. We had to wear desk masks on our faces and, um, and, and this was just on the side of the road. This wasn't even where the barns were, which were quite a walk in. And so I can just imagine how terrible that must be for these kids Um, respiratory symptoms well no kidding you're breathing in all this ammonia from the feces of of the birds and and uh, and chicken poo as it turns out has extremely high ammonia levels in it yeah
3: exactly yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it's kind of scary. Like, obviously, these kinds of things can cause serious health problems, and we have children being exposed to these. Um, yeah, we don't have too much time left, but I just wanted to mention that there is an interesting article on the Food Empowerment Project website that kind of touches on this. It's The website is foodispower.org, and if you look under the issues, one of the things that they talk about is environmental racism and um, how quite often, you know, these uh, animal farms, slaughterhouses, et cetera, these facilities that are releasing all kinds of toxic toxic fumes and um, chemicals into the water supply and stuff, they're very frequently located in rural areas that are tend to be populated more with low-income people mm-hmm. and uh, black and brown communities. And that's kind of the case in Abbotsford as well in this particular area. So that's something to think about. It is a, a social justice issue in addition to, um, you know, obviously being a huge health concern for children.
2: And I want to say as well that even... Even the farming community members in that area, they wouldn't want their children to be breathing this in. You would think, right? Absolutely, right. Yeah. And this is a common day thing, and and I just feel for those poor kids who are, they're starting off their lives with a potential respiratory disease that's going to continue on for the rest of their lives. Yeah, it's not. Um, this shouldn't be happening in right. Canada or anywhere. But that's what the animal agriculture industry is all about. Mm-hmm.
4: Free Geek Vancouver needs donations to remain in business. They have announced that they are in danger of closing and need your help to keep the doors open. Since 2006, the organization has helped divert over 780 tons of e waste from landfills, rebuilt over 4,200 computers, and trained over 9,700 volunteers. Free Geek Vancouver serves the Metro Van community in four important ways electronic reuse and recycling, providing free and low cost computers to the public and non profit organizations low-cost tech support every Wednesday night by donation, and training programs for people of all ages and skill levels. Free Geek Vancouver asks those who have financial means to consider making a donation to support their continued existence. Donations can be made online on their website, freegeekvancouver.org, or in person at 1820 Pandora Street.
2: For our first interview today, we have Animal Justice Lawyer and Executive Director Camille Labchuk back with us on the show. Animal Justice is a non-profit organization which leads the legal fight for animals in Canada. Its lawyers work to pass strong new animal protection legislation, push for the prosecution of animal abusers, and fight for animals in court. There's been a lot of animal rights and welfare issues making headlines across Canada these days that have implications in our law, and Animal Justice... Justice has been busy and involved in many of these issues. We have Camille on today to give us some updates and her legal opinions about what's happening in the Animal Justice Canadian world. Hello, Camille, and welcome back to the Animal Voices Show. Hi, Alison. It's a delight to be here. Well, thanks for agreeing to come back on the show because, yeah, it's been a while since we've had a lawyer come on the show (laughs) to give us all your legal opinions. So the premier thing on my mind and how it relates to our legal system these days is fur. The fur-trimmed coats are back now in our winter season and high-end, high-cruelty brands such as Canada Goose and Moose Knuckles, to name a few, have made their reappearance in the streets as those who wear them think they're making a big fashion statement when in reality it's all a disgrace on how our society treats animals. I'm interested in knowing your observations of the fur industry in the past year. We've seen the cities of San Francisco and Los Angeles enact a citywide ban on the sales of fur, and then the whole state of California just recently passed the ban, and a few weeks ago, the country of Slovakia joined 13 other European countries that ban fur farming, Activists in Portland, Oregon are currently moving towards a citywide sales ban. And not only that, the high fashion designers that are giving up fur in their clothing lines are falling rapidly like a row of dominoes as each one realizes that it's their turn next to be on the right side of history. So, what is the state of the fur industry these days in Canada? We have yet to see a fur ban of any type in Canada. What is the background that we Canadians need to know to be informed on how companies like Canada Goose based in Ontario continue to make their millions off the lives of innocent geese and wild-caught coyotes?
0: Well, Allison, it's certainly been exciting for me to watch all the amazing activism and the amazing legal change that's happening around the question of fur. I think in the 80s and 90s, when uh, there was the last wave of anti-fur activism and fur became known as fur is murder, what was great about that period of time is that consumer attitudes started changing about fur and people stopped wearing fur-length coats, at least in uh, Western countries in North America to to some extent. But what we didn't really see during that phase was legal change happening to protect fur animals, uh, animals killed for their fur. And that's what we're starting to see with this new wave of activism. We're seeing both behavioral change and uh, reduced consumption of fur and a shift from the fur industry away from selling fur-length coats, which it knows no one will buy, towards trying to hide their fur in items like trim, which people often assume is just faux fur. So uh, I'm really excited by all these amazing bands that are starting to happen. And to me, that really reflects that people are just ready or this idea that fur is no longer an acceptable thing to be wearing. When you're when you're looking at major U.S. cities like this, start moving in this direction. I think that's really, really positive. So, uh, you know, what's what's interesting about the fur industry these days in Canada is we're seeing it take a hit as well. If we look at the commercial seal kill on Canada's east coast, mm-hmm. that uh, kill, I believe, is down to around forty thousand seals being killed a year. Uh, from a high of over 325,000 at one point, only about a decade ago. So that's certainly positive news. And then we're seeing a lot more people become aware of what Canada goose uh, does to coyotes. So, of of course, coyotes trap for their fur for Canada goose jackets. Uh, They're caught in leg hold traps or snares. And leg hold traps in some regions, they don't even have to be checked with any sort of specified regularity. Animals can suffer in those traps for days and days. Uh, before they're dispatched by a trapper, killed.
2: Well, I'm I'm wondering. Uh, have you seen the new short film called "The Farm in My Backyard" by We Animals Media? Because this exposes the fur industry in Nova Scotia.
0: Yeah, and it's a fantastic film. I would encourage anyone to watch it. It's it's free for consumption on Vimeo. And uh, they actually held a screening of The the farm in My Backyard at a conference that we hosted in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Dalhousie University uh, about about a month and a half ago. That was the inaugural Canadian Animal Law Conference. And, um, you know, it's really great, I think, to bring exposure to the issue right at home in Nova Scotia, and one of the interesting things about the film is it focuses not just on the fact that animals confined in these tiny cages, specifically minks, uh, they're abused and suffer significantly before they're killed, it also talks about the environmental damage and pollution that the fur industry unleashes on the environment. Uh, It's actually a huge problem, Nova Scotia itself has recognized that this is an issue, Uh, But not enough legal change has happened yet. So it's really important that folks like We Animals are exposing the fur Mm -hmm. industry in Nova Scotia.
3: Our host, Elise, here has a question for you. Hi, Camille. Uh, Can you talk about Animal Justice's role in taking the city of Toronto to court last month in an effort to challenge an advertising agency working for the city that took down an anti-Canada goose ad last year after only being up for one day because they received one complaint about it?
0: Yeah, it was a super interesting case. So just about a year ago, PETA uh, put up anti-Canada Goose ads in Toronto, and they put those ads on Toronto City transit shelters. Now, the transit shelters are not run by the City of Toronto. They're leased out to Astral Media to run on behalf of the City of Toronto. So Astral Media was the one responsible for the ads, for approving them and putting them up. And Astral Media contacted PETA just the day that those ads went up, and it said it was receiving tons of internal and external complaints about the ads. And the ads weren't graphic, they weren't gory, they simply said, you know, they, they showed a photo of a coyote or a goose, and urged consumers to see the animal as an individual and not as fur trim, and to boycott Canada Goose. So a really powerful message. And obviously Canada Goose did not like this because what emerged in the court case is that the only complaint, in fact, that had been received was from someone at Canada Goose who wrote and, you know, essentially threatened uh, Astral Media with taking its ad dollars elsewhere because Canada Goose buys ads from it as well. So we were happy to see PETA file a lawsuit over that case and Animal Justice intervened in it. And the point that we wanted to make was that It's a charter right of Canadians to express ourselves on public property. That includes transit shelters owned by the city of Toronto. And anyone who removes ads because they don't like the content is infringing on the free expression rights of animal advocates. And we absolutely need access to those avenues to be able to use public advertisements to spread the message about fur.
2: Yes, and you know, just not even about ten months later we had the Be Fair, Be Vegan campaign take over the T T C Toronto Transit system. So things are changing because there were some there were some images of fur bearing animals in the in that huge ad campaign.
0: Yeah, that was fantastic. I've been on the streetcar that's all decked out in the Be Fair, Be Vegan campaign at the St. George subway station was completely filled with it, and it was just incredible. And I think the reason that that didn't attract anybody's ire is because it didn't target a specific mm-hmm. company. Uh, the Be Fair, Be Vegan campaign speaks more generally about animals and suffering and exploitation and urges people to stop using animals for various purposes, but it didn't target a company in the same way that those Canada Goose ads did. And to me, I think that's important. Sorry about that. <laughs> Dog uh, I think that's important because it's, it's not just that we should have the right to say things generally about veganism. We need to be able to target companies who abuse and cause horrific suffering to animals, too.
2: Yeah, absolutely. They pay their dollars to advertise, and animal advocates can pay their money to advertise against them, in my opinion. That's what a free country is all about. So moving forward, what would you envision as the ideal legal process to be instigated to either ban the sales of fur in Canada or even at the city level and or to ban the fur farming industry in Canada? In light of recent successes and fur bans around the world, but in a country where the fur industry plays an integral part of our history, is even starting to strategize at this point a doable thing in your opinion Opinion and keeping in mind that i would say uh you know a year and a half ago i never would have thought that the ban of whales and dolphins in captivity would be something in canada and now look where we're at so is this something that we might see in the future how can this happen
0: well you're right sometimes the pace of legal change surprises us we kind of feel like the way things are right now is the way they're always going to be and then an idea takes hold and it just runs like wildfire. And the more people hear about it, the more they talk about it, the more they start to agree with it. And I think that banning sales of fur is one of those ideas that's really picking up steam right now and it's exciting to me. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see us, to see other groups, to see uh, lots of individual advocates working for various restrictions on, on fur, whether that be sales or production. I think we're going to have some challenges at the municipal level and it differs from province to province and even sometimes city to city what powers municipalities have but it's not entirely clear that in a lot of places in the country they actually could ban sales of fur uh, there's some doubt there and someone really needs to do this, this research and look to see in a little bit more detail what can happen um just speaking from personal experience in the city of toronto i'll, I'll just tell you an example of why mm-hmm. this could be a problem there was a a shark fin sales ban passed in 2011 and restaurant owners who wanted to serve shark fin products still took the city to court and they managed to overturn that ban. And the court found that the city didn't have jurisdiction to pass it. Uh, The city has abilities to make bylaws affecting animals, but when we're talking about a product that's no longer a live animal, that may be a bit of a problem. So there needs to be some research done, but for sure provinces and the federal government could restrict uh, fur in various ways. The provinces could ban the farming of fur. Uh, They could restrict trapping and hunting. They could ban sales of fur. That would be uh, certainly within their powers. And I think that the federal government could ban fur farming as well. So I think uh, it's time to start reaching out to legislators at all levels of government.
2: Thanks for that, Camille. So as I mentioned earlier, Canada banned whale and dolphin captivity with the passing of Bill S-203, which Animal Justice fought for. And as I said that, even a year before that, imagining or considering that such a law would be enacted nationwide would have seemed impossible to me. But it was done. That's progress. However, there can be hiccups as new animal protection laws are passed, as you just noted, and those who are affected in their animal Exploitation enterprises suddenly see themselves against a wall as to how they can continue to make millions of dollars at the cost of animals since that's their business. This brings us to this week where Ontario's Cetacean Aquarium Marineland is trying to secretly export their beluga whales to the U.S. to be bred there. Can you tell us more about what's going on here as Animal Justice just testified a few days ago at the National Marine Fisheries Services in Washington, D.C. to oppose import permits for beluga whales. What was the case for opposing import permits, and how can Marineland get away with this shady behavior?
0: Well, it's amazing that Canada's passed this groundbreaking legislation. It truly is uh, a watershed moment for animals in Canada. It It was the first time that we passed any serious new animal protection legislation since the 1800s. So, amazing for whales and an amazing precedent. But now we're fighting to make sure that that ban still has peace. So just to be clear on what is restricted, uh, it's now an offense to keep whales and dolphins in captivity and to export whales and dolphins to other countries or to import them and to breed them. But uh, the ban on keeping them in captivity exempts any whales and dolphins who are already in captivity. Uh, and Marineland has, a, I believe, 56 uh, whales and dolphins. There's uh, one orca, about five dolphins, and um, a number of belugas. Um, actually, I think the number is 61. And They 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 can't acquire any more whales or dolphins, but the ones that they have can stay put because, frankly, there's just nowhere for them to go yet, short of another aquarium. And we're hoping that there will be sanctuaries eventually built, but that's not quite the case yet. So now Marineland, of course, is trying to find some way to monetize these animals, and they are trying to ship them to Mystic Aquarium in Connecticut in the United States. Now, I said a minute ago that you can't export whales and dolphins anymore. Mm-hmm. So the question is, how can they do this? Well, there can be a permit issued by the, fish, the fisheries minister if the export is, A, in the best interest of the whales, and that provision was inserted to make sure that they could go to the sanctuary if one was developed, or, B, for research, for scientific research. And the aquariums are, are getting together and they're trying to make the case that this is a research initiative. So uh, two things have to happen. First of all, there needs to be export permits issued for research or the best interest of the whales here in Canada. But second, the U.S. also has to issue import permits. And it's by far a sure thing that either of those is going to happen. So my colleague, Caitlin Mitchell, our staff lawyer, was in Washington uh, earlier this week to try to tell the U.S. government not to issue import permits. Uh, we made the case that transport of these whales was very stressful that the research could be done in marineland instead of stress, stressing them out by transporting them, um, and that because the whales would be bred in uh, the States, it would go completely contrary to the purpose of our new bill. So we're staying uh, very closely tuned to, to this. We'll keep everyone updated on ways that uh, they can get involved, especially if those permits are applied for in Canada.
2: Thank you for that. Well, I also want to discuss the recent ag-gag law that was effectively put into place as I understand it in Alberta a few months ago after animal activists occupied a turkey factory farm in the province this summer to expose the realities and the horrors of the industry in the second Meet the Victims action to take place in Canada. We had the first Canadian Meet the Victims action here in Abbotsford, BC at the Excelsior Hog Farm in April, and now local Chilliwack, Kent, and MLA Lori Thronis has recently introduced the Trespass Amendment Act 2019 to in quotes add specific and targeted penalties against those who trespass on farms. Can you speak on the validity of putting such laws into place while at the same time animal advocates are exposing and hearing cruelties towards animals that includes illegal actions against animals that the local enforcement agencies have done nothing about. Instead they continually drop cruelty investigations at these places, citing weak excuses while the arrests and charge of activists who expose these violations of the law continue on.
0: Yeah, it's a really disturbing development in Canadian law. We're now seeing Ontario talking about bringing some, some egg-gag style laws into place. Um, Alberta has now introduced legislature, uh, legislation in its legislature, and uh, it seems like there's going to be a private members bill in D.C. as well. And it's it's not clear what all of the details are going to be yet, um, but we know in Alberta that they're increasing fines massively. So they're uh, making fines five times as hefty uh, for trespass to target people who go onto farms. And they are also imposing uh, really strict corporate liability mechanisms. So this suggests to me that they're trying to target the groups who people might be involved with who happen to go onto farms. Uh, of up to $200,000 for a group that promotes any such trespass. But the most disturbing thing for me is that in Alberta's legislation, there's a provision that says that it is a trespass if somebody misrepresents themselves to gain access to a property. Now, what does that mean for animal advocates? Well, it's a huge chilling effect on undercover investigations, which are often the only way that the public has to see what's going on behind the closed doors of farms. So, uh, you know, for instance, if somebody doesn't disclose on a job application when they're asked that they're a member of an animal rights organization or that they're vegan, that could be a misrepresentation that results in prosecution and hefty, hefty fines. So it's pretty disturbing. Uh, Jail time is also possible. We are going to monitor this. Um, We're concerned about the constitutionality of these provisions, so we'll be continuing to work on this and we'll see what happens. But I would just add to that, Allison, that what's really frustrating about this is, as you point out, we're talking about farms where basically it's a law-free zone. There's no regulations. There's no standards under the law for what can happen to animals on farms, how much space they need, how much fresh air they, they need, what kind of veterinary attention they need. Uh, none of that's set up in laws. And instead of addressing this, we're seeing our government's crack down on animal advocates. So I think this is completely wrong, and I think this is an issue that we all need to be very active on and contact our legislators when the time is right.
2: Thanks for that response, Camille. We just have one minute left here for the interview, so I just want everyone to know that, Camille, you are actually one half of uh, a podcast called Paw in Order that Animal Justice puts on, and I think every Canadian should subscribe to it, so I just want to put that out to our listeners, and you can go to animaljustice.ca and find out more about your podcast there. So, people might think that an animal rights law podcast might be kind of boring, but it's totally not, and that's because of you and your co-host peter so thanks for putting on that podcast i really enjoy it and then also as we know animal justice is a very effective organization that gets things done with respect to animal protection in canada and as being a nonprofit, fundraising is crucial and you have three animal justice holiday parties coming up soon one in vancouver as well can you tell us about these and how and when our listeners can attend
0: well, thanks for the very kind words about the podcast. So we love when, when people start listening. And we're having parties this year on uh, November 29th in Vancouver. We're, we're at the West Side Grand, it's 1928 West Broadway Street. Um, it's super fun. We've got amazing vegan food, cocktails, special guests, silent auction. It's a really great way to connect with other compassionate supporters of animal protection. So if you check out our website, animaljustice.ca, You can see a link there on the main page to RSCP. We would love to have you there. And we're having parties as well December 6th in Toronto and December 13th in Ottawa. And all the details are there. So please come and join us.
2: Thank you, Camille Labchuk, Executive Director of the nonprofit Animal Justice for coming on the show today to give us an update on various animal advocacy issues in Canada and the legalities involved in them. To stay informed about Animal Justice's work, you can visit their website at animaljustice.ca and find them on social media at Animal Justice Canada. And don't forget to subscribe to the Paw and Order podcast. Thank you, Camille, and have a good day.
3: Thank you. And we have some events to cover that are coming up for you this coming Sunday, November 24th from 1 to 3 p.m. at Hornby and West Georgia Street. It's the Vancouver protest to end sled dog cruelty. Last Saturday, dozens of animal activists targeted commercial sled dog businesses across Canada to raise public awareness of the immense suffering and cruelty dogs are forced to endure in the sled dog industry. Please join them this Sunday, November 24th um, as they stand in solidarity with these brave activists and bring their message to Vancouver. It is time to make dog sledding a thing of the past. Hey, can I just say something about that? Sure. So
2: yeah. um, this is all surrounding uh, Fern Levitt's work. She's a filmmaker and she made the film called Sled Dogs, which we and we featured her on the show about, I think. Couple of years ago, when that film came out, so if you um, if you have a chance, watch that film Sled Dogs. It's all about the sled dog industry and how horrible
3: it is, and uh, and also listen to our interview at AnimalVoices.org. Yeah, for sure. And you can find more information about this protest on the Facebook event page for this event. Search Vancouver protest to end sled dog cruelty. It's on our Facebook page too. That's right. Yeah. And again, that's uh, this Sunday, November twenty fourth, one to three p.m. at Hornby and West. Georgia downtown and Camille our interviewee touched on this I just wanted to briefly again mention the Animal Justice Holiday Party that's next Friday November 29th at 6pm at the West Side Grand at 1928 West Broadway um, they're going to have tons of food a cash bar live music silent auction um, there's going to be so many Vancouver uh, restaurants participating and food businesses um, as well as non-food businesses like Line Spa and Polish the City first fully vegan and cruelty-free nail salon. They're amazing. Uh, And Willow's Wax Bar, Vancouver's only all-vegan cruelty-free spa, as well as native shoes and white rhino bags. So that'll be fun, it sounds like. Lots of good food. Um, I think the, the party, again, is at the West Side Grand, 1928 West Broadway, and admission is by Donation with a suggested minimum of $50 per person. And you can find more information on the Animal Justice website, animaljustice.ca. If you have an animal-friendly event that you would like us to share on the show, shoot us an email at radioanimalvoices at gmail.com. And now, just briefly, we have some news for you as well. Uh, animal rights activists locked themselves to the entrance of an interior savings location on Monday morning in protest of the credit union's support of Ribfest Kelowna. The group of protesters prevented the downtown Kelowna branch from opening after they blocked the doorway for about three hours. In a statement, the activists said interior savings plays a big role in sponsoring the August event and other Ribfests across the province, and called on the credit union to cease its Sponsorship of the event. They said, We will continue to escalate our tactics until Interior Savings does drop their sponsorship. We have protested their sponsorship of RibFest for many years now. That's protester Amy Serrano, who has been on Animal Voices before. Mm -hmm. She said, Our concerns have been ignored and they haven't been addressed. So we are escalating our tactics and we will continue to do so until our concerns are met. End quote. The protesters met with an executive from the credit union, but were unsatisfied with the meeting, according to Sergeant Greg Woodcox with Kelowna RCMP. The protesters vowed to remain on site until their demand was met, but they were removed by RCMP around 11 a.m. Mounties used bolt cutters to remove the chains, and the protesters were eventually put into the back of a police cruiser. I asked them if they were going to move after they'd made their point, and and they said no. And they weren't going to move unless they were forcibly removed or arrested, said Cox. We made a decision to conduct the arrest of, I believe, seven or eight females here for mischief, end quote. Cox said the demonstrators would be transported to the detachment where they would try to get them unhooked from each other and be released on a promise to appear at a later date. The activists also expressed concern over Excelsior Hog Farms' involvement in various local rib fests. The demonstrator said the Abbotsford Farm supplies pig ribs to many rib fest vendors. It came under scrutiny in the spring after PETA released video they say was shot at the farm, which shows dead piglets an adult pig's corpse, and pigs covered with tumors. Demonstrators gathered at the farm in April wearing t-shirts that read Meet the Victims, M-E-A-T, the Victims, which we have also extens- extensively covered here on Animal Voices. The operators of the farm, Ray and Jeff Bin and co- conducted a tour of the farm after the footage was released and argued that PETA had misrepresented what happens at the facility. Um, yeah, so that's the big news for this week. Right,
2: and you know what? Uh, The activists are not going to stop. They're Mm -hmm. going to go back and people are already starting to shut down their bank accounts with interior savings because they disagree with them not pulling out their sponsorship. Thanks for the news, Elise. So you are listening to Animal Voices on 100.5 FM CFRO on Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, Canada. For our feature interview, we have author Eric O'Gray with us whose newly updated page Paperback book called "Walking with Petey, the Dog Who Saved My Life" has just come out this month. You may remember the story of Eric and Petey when it was made as a six-minute short film that went overboard viral several years ago, reaching over 100 million inspired people all over the world. It was then that I knew I wanted to have Eric on the show one day. The film was named by the New York Times as the number one internet news story in California in 2016, and continues. To to be popular to this day. Eric is an inspirational speaker with a Bachelor of Science degree in Finance from San Jose State University and a Juris Doctor degree from Emory University. He is passionate about animal kindness, plant-based nutrition, and gourmet cooking, and helping others reverse obesity, type 2 diabetes, and achieve their optimal weight and happiness as he has done for himself in the story we will share with you today. Eric will also speak about the life-transformative benefits of companion animal Adoption, where you might think that you're rescuing an animal, but it turns out that they are rescuing you as well. Hello, Eric, and welcome to the Animal Voices Show.
4: Well, thank you so much for having me on your show and also for the kindness and generosity of your introduction.
2: Well, thank you so much for being here. I'm I'm honored to have you on the show today, especially after having read your book this week, which is such a page turner. I just read it so quickly, and I just I hope that everyone goes out and and reads it. And you know, I remember seeing the short film about you and Petey on Facebook a few years ago, and how you changed each other's lives for the better. It's a story that made me cry tears of joy every time I've seen this film. Your book, Walking with Petey, the dog who saved my life, is a full narrative of your life-changing journey over a span of the last decade. And I highly, highly recommend it once again for all of our listeners to read. It's a personally gripping page-turner, as I said, and I just enjoyed reading it so much. Now, where the book starts is as you, as a morbidly obese person living a life of despair and loneliness and providing a lens for the rest of us who would have never have thought of or imagined the daily struggles that being morbidly obese can put you in. You were about 340 pounds back then, which you found to be a very uncomfortable weight to be at, and you were all but hopeless to find some way to live a purposeful life and then a miracle happened which entailed a vision that you experienced telling you to follow the signs to change your life and unlike most people you did exactly that first can you tell us a bit about what your life was like back then and how it affected you not only physically but psychologically as well
4: It's um, it is extraordinarily miserable and difficult to be obese. Um, It's painful in every way. Walking is painful. Getting around is painful. Um, I was out of breath just tying my shoes. Uh, Clothing doesn't fit at all. And it's just very difficult to go around, get outside. When you do run into people, everybody is looking at you with with some sort of, um, a lot of people look at you with judgment, and you just start feeling like a great sense of shame and um, unworthiness. And so I, like a lot of people in that condition, simply stopped going outside because I didn't want other people to see me. I felt ashamed and embarrassed about myself, and I didn't want to deal with the judgment. I, I just, so I stopped going outside And right before the book starts, I'd been in a situation where I only went outside when absolutely necessary when required by my employment and when I had no other choice. So I had lost all my friends. All my friends had gone by the wayside. I was living in an apartment by myself. I wasn't going outside at all, and I hadn't been on a date in 15 years. I wasn't as much living as I was just waiting to die and living from day to day, it was, it was a very difficult experience.
2: Well, the former U.S. President, Bill Clinton, who we know to be a plant-based eater, plays a role in your transformation. Can you tell us how this led to you following the signs of your vision that led you to a naturopathic doctor that actually spent the time to listen to your story, ask you many questions, and then give you some specific tasks to do rather than simply prescribing some medication as most doctors would do?
4: Thank you. So. I had um, two rock-bottom experiences. The first one, when my uh, primary care physician looked at my file one day, looked at me during a physical and told me that I should probably go out and purchase a cemetery plot because I would likely need one in the next five years. And it was then I decided to get a second opinion and, and find a new doctor. Okay. And very shortly after that, I had to go on a, um, on a work trip. And just so I had to fly out of town to Louisville, Kentucky. And on my way back, it's such an extraordinary experience being that big, getting on onto an airplane. You know, as you're walking down the aisle, every person is looking at you with a look of fear in their eye as if, Oh, my God, don't let that fat guy sit next to me. So on the plane that day, I got in and I sat down and I tried to strap in to the flight, but the seatbelt wasn't long enough and I needed a seatbelt extension. The flight didn't have one, so they had to delay my flight by 45 minutes. Till they found a seatbelt extension on another plane. And while this was happening, there was a guy next to me saying, I'm going to miss my connection because you're too fat. And it was just a really horrible experience. So the very next day, and this was in 2010, I got home, I turned on the TV, and there was Wolf Blitzer interviewing Bill Clinton on television. And Mr. Clinton looked better than any time that I'd ever seen him in my entire life. The bags under his eyes were gone. His face was oval rather than round. He looked really good, and and, uh, Wolf just eventually stopped the interview and said, you know, Mr. President, you have to tell us what you've done because you just look great. And he said that for his daughter getting married and to reverse his heart disease, he had uh, consulted with some doctors who were aligned with a new book called The China Study, and they were helping him implement a plant-based diet to lose weight and reverse his heart disease. And at that time, I'd been on every diet ever commercially marketed in the United States. Weight Watchers, Nutrisystems, Atkins, everything. In fact, I'd cycled on and off of Atkins for 20 years trying to lose weight, and nothing had worked. Everything, I would fail and then rebound and regain all the weight. So when when Mr. Clinton said plant-based diet, I immediately Googled plant-based diet. This was in August 2010. And when I Googled that, Google returned for Clinton plant-based diet, no search results found. Now, if you do that same search now, you're going to get about 30 million hits. And so (laughs) I thought I got to find out about this. So I immediately engaged my research skills and I started calling new doctors because I wanted a new doctor, trying to find a doctor who knew what this plant-based diet was. Maybe this would work for me. And eventually I did find a doctor a licensed naturopathic doctor in Cupertino, California. Her name is Dr. Preeti Kolkerny, and she was wonderful. Anyway, she said that not only did she know what that was, but she practiced it herself, and she encouraged me to make an appointment to come down and see her to see if we could, if that would work for me also, and so I did.
3: Amazing. Hi, I'm Eric Elise here. I'm just wondering, uh, can you tell us how you found Petey at the Humane Society shelter that first week and how your relationship with him developed in the first six weeks, uh, especially given that you had never been an animal guardian before?
4: Yeah, so... When I went to a Dr. Preedy, it was, it was very interesting. She told me that uh, uh, after everything that she did for me, and I don't want to skip ahead, but she prescribed. It was very unusual. It was unlike any doctor's appointment that I'd ever had before. Rather than just spend five minutes with me and write me a prescription, she prescribed, after spending an hour and a half with me, she prescribed a plant-based diet and a dog from my local shelter. And at the time, I couldn't figure out why she was prescribing a dog because I'd never had a pet before, and I didn't know how a pet could help me. And she said it was for several reasons. First, so I would get outside and be forced to walk the dog. Second, because I would get outside and maybe meet some people. And third, so I would have some companionship. So I asked her, and I said, was it okay if I get a cat instead? And she said Have you ever walked a cat? And I said, no, but I think I've seen it done on TV. So I I immediately went home, and in addition to implementing all of her other uh, suggestions, she sent me home with a bunch of recipes and various things. And then on top of implementing her other suggestions, the very next day I called, I I did some research, and I I found animals, or I found animal shelters in my area, and I called. Humane Society Silicon Valley in Milpitas, California, because I was living in San Jose at the time. And I called and I said, my doctor said that I need an obese middle-aged dog so we have something in common. And they said, well, we have, you know, after she talked to me on the phone for a while, the adoption coordinator, she said, we have the perfect dog for you. And so I went down thinking that the perfect dog was a dog that never had allergy issues, wouldn't bark, uh, was just smiled all the time, would love me, and would never ever in the history of the dog pee or poop in my apartment. So I went down looking for that perfect dog, and in my mind was like an eight-pound golden retriever. And so after I made it through the uh, the interview process and uh, uh, committed that this dog would remain part of my life forever, and there was no take-backs. And once I adopted this dog, this dog was part of my family, and I had made a formal commitment. I went in to the adoption room, and I'm sitting in the adoption room, and I hear this very loud sound coming down the hallway, and it sounds like almost like Godzilla is coming down the hallway, like really deep thuds and clacks of nails on concrete. And in walked the the most obese, unhealthy-looking dog that I'd ever seen in my life, And I was shocked at first. And so I said to the adoption coordinator, I said, well, where's my dog? And as soon as I said that, because that wasn't the dog that I had in mind. And as soon as I said that the dog looked up at me and he was more disappointed in me than I was in him. And so the adoption coordinator controlled the situation immediately, and she said, well, you know, she she reaffirmed why I was there. She said, you know, you need to, uh, a buddy to work on something together, and can you imagine any dog that is more perfect for you? And, you know, in fact, I couldn't. So I went home with the dog, and I named the dog Petey because I'd never had a dog before, and I'd always, when I was a, I was a kid, I'm older. When I was a kid, I watched a uh, TV series called The Little Rascals. And the hero dog on that was his name was Petey, so I figured I would call my new dog Petey. So we got home, and I didn't know what to do with him, and he didn't know what to do with me. I don't think that he'd ever been inside before. Uh, I think that he'd been on, according to the what I read on the intake forms, he'd been uh, on a chain most of his life, and he was seven years old. And I looked at him, and he looked at me from opposite sides of the room, kind of skeptically for about the first three days, but we, we slowly but surely implement began to implement my doctor's suggestions or uh, prescription of walking for a half an hour twice a day. The first day we made it about 100 yards, came back and had to uh, just relax and, and really take a nap. But after that, you know, after three days of just kind of like distrusting each other, and not knowing what to make of each other, he jumped up on my bed at night and he put his head on my chest and there began the greatest bond that I'd ever had with a person or an animal in my entire life. He treated me as if I was the greatest person to ever walk the earth. And in doing so, we formed a bond so strong, it was unlike I said anything that I'd ever experienced in my life. It was pure, unconditional love. Mm -hmm. And I just became so committed because he was in such bad shape and I was in such bad shape, I became committed to do whatever I had to do to get better and to get him better because if something happened to me, what would happen to him? And because he cared so much about me, I couldn't let anything happen to him. So I committed that that dog was going to have an amazing life. He was going to go places. He was going to go on vacations. He was going to see things that other dogs didn't see. And me and him, were going to do it together. And he loved me so much that I just began to like myself again. And he believed in me that I began to believe in myself again because he treated me as the greatest person on the earth. I decided to become the person who he thought that I was.
2: That, that's so beautiful Eric this is the point where I start crying so well. <laughs> but let's so. let's that's such a beautiful story uh, but let's talk about the food part because it wasn't just the you're speaking about how you're finally getting out and getting exercise walking to the end of the block which you had never done before and following the orders of dr Pretty, you went into eating a whole Foods plant-based food regime or diet with full force having been someone who hadn't eaten an orange since 18 Age 10 and then suddenly eating fruits and vegetables in your early 50s even though it was a way of eating that you were completely unfamiliar with. I love that part of this transformation story because it can be so exciting when we are presented suddenly with the thousands of new plant foods that we can eat whereas they were previously unknown of following a diet of meat and potatoes or say fast food every day. So please share with us a bit of your journey on how transitioning from greasy fast food delivery every day to the world of plants and vegan was like for you?
4: Well, I was 50 years old at the time, and this was 10 years ago. And uh, when Dr. Pretty talked to me, I, I thought back... And I could not remember ever in my entire life ever eating a meal that did not include animal products. I, I don't think that I ever had. And so she told me that that was all going to change. And, and so she gave me a list of recipes. And the failure in all of my previous medical experiences were when I'd go in and the doctor would tell me that I would be really unhealthy and about to die or needed all these things. And then he'd write me a new prescription. It would always end that discussion with, uh... and you need diet and exercise but nobody ever told me what that was so i always joked and said well they're telling me that i need a diet with extra fries and so when doctor Preedy said no she's going to walk me through this we're going to have weekly visits and as a part of these weekly visits uh... we're going to talk about what worked what didn't she's going to send me home with new recipes and shopping lists every time and then i can just simply implement those So the first time that she sent me home with a shopping list i struggled through you know, getting some stuff from Safeways and went home, and because I only knew at the time how to boil water or use a microwave, on the first time that I tried to cook, I accidentally set off the fire alarms in my building, my apartment building, and it caused the building to have to evacuate, and there was the fat guy, you know, uh, standing out again, and and that really bothered me. But Dr. Preeti uh, referred me to um, some cooking classes, as I describe in the book, and I really kind of like took this to heart, and over a fairly short period of time, I learned how to use Just whole plants and herbs and spices to make food that was more delicious, tastier, more filling, more satisfying than the meat and animal products that I was eating before. So really after about a month or so of transition issues and kind of cravings, I stuck it out for Petey because I had to and I got through it. And basically, I suddenly, what I was getting in return was so much greater than what I was giving up. I felt so good. I felt better than I'd ever felt in my entire life. I went back to Dr. Preeti and I told her that I felt like I'd stepped out of the matrix. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was that profound. And she said, well, you're starting to feel normal for the first time. And that just stunned me because I realized then that I'd never before in my entire life ever felt normal before.
3: Right. Wow.
2: And, and with this new change in eating and exercising, as you state in the book, like it seemed like every single week you were just losing five pounds because you had that weight to lose.
4: So it was crazy. I started off um, at 340 pounds on taking 200 units of insulin a day, the maximum recommended dose of metformin, three different antidepressants, uh, statins and um, uh, high blood pressure medication and various other medications designed to mitigate the side effects of other medications. It was was truly difficult to do because I had all these pill bottles lined up in my bathroom and I, I had to go through this process every morning and read the label and remember how many of each to take. So I went through all that and in three months, I was off all of my medications including my diabetes medication, and this was like insulin injections, and I was in three months, uh, my blood sugar, my morning blood sugars had normalized, and I'd started to get like really high, you know, I started to get uh, faint all the time from, you know, the insulin. So my doctor just basically cut all this off and we just got off the medication. And so I'd started immediately like losing about five pounds a week and then it went to four, three, two, one near the end. But the net effect is that in ten months I lost a hundred and fifty pounds. And the reason that I was able to do this was because I was being coached and mentored on a weekly basis by my doctor on exactly how to do this and figuring all this out and and for the first time learning how to eat correctly and how my body worked because they don 't teach this kind of stuff in in high school or college mm-hmm. unless you take you know a, a science curriculum and i hadn 't i 'd taken business classes and then um, I, I was an attorney but i 'd never like knew how my body worked. Or as far as I was concerned, I was simply eating what I saw everybody else eating. And then I was having the food delivered to my door because I didn't want to go outside anymore. And then and then when I was obese, I was just going up to uh, uh, the drive-through windows and Dr. Pretty called this the the window diet. And that's when you go up and you order through the speaker and they just hand you the food through the window. So that's why I was on the window diet. But the point is I was off all my meds in about three months I was off. Uh, I reached, I, I dropped from 340 to 180 pounds in 10 months. And the most expensive part of the process, because I was only paying a $25 a week insurance copay to Dr. Preeti and everything else was just covered by, you know, the insurance services. The most expensive part of the process was purchasing transition clothing. I, I spent about $4,000 on, transition closing because every 10 pounds is about an inch off your waist and then every 30 pounds you really need a full set of clothes you can't like tailor this stuff I mean so I was like going to uh the discount stores and just buying temporary replacement clothing and just to get through the weight loss um the clothing was the most expensive part
2: and I understand your wife Jay also has an incredible story of weight loss due to plant-based eating can you tell us about that please
4: She does. And thank you so much for asking. Um, It's a really amazing story with a lot of different twists and turns and coincidences. But my wife and I dated from age 15 to 17. We were high school sweethearts. And then at age 17, I went in the uh, army and we lost contact for 40 years. After the Eric and Petey film came out, I was getting thousands of emails a day. And somehow through all this noise, uh, she found me and we connected and we hadn't spoken in 40 years. And it was really kind of like a, an interesting situation because we, we talked and we were both single at the time. And so we decided to kind of get back together and you know um, have dinner and, and see what was up. And it really worked out well, but she told me on that first phone call that she was afraid for me to see her because she'd put on a lot of weight since high school and she had certain medical problems similar to what I had. Well, she had pre-diabetes and uh, various different uh, uh, medical issues. And so I told her, you know, first, don't worry about your weight, because what kind of person would I be having been morbidly obese for 25 years if I were now judging people based upon their looks or their weight? And then number two, you know, I think that um, I'm confident that if you did exactly what I did, I I think that I can show you a way to achieve similar uh, uh, success in both health and weight loss. So she agreed. We got back together. We really hit it off. We decided to resume our relationship after uh, 40 years in, in short order uh, because she's, she's Italian and comes from an Italian family. We veganized all of her Italian recipes and she really kind of like took to it and she adapted to it the same way that I did and she was very enthusiastic about doing this and um, you know, in connection with, with uh, a, a doctor's oversight, she was able to achieve similar results that, that I did. She went from size uh, 20 to size two from 197 pounds to 115 pounds in 10 months, reversed her uh, prediabetes, got off all of her medications, doing the exact same thing that I did, which was a healthy, whole-food, plant-based, vegan diet. And walking our dog for a half an hour twice a day and the weight just came off same results that I did and what's interesting her before and after photos uh, are in the book as mine are and a bunch of other stuff but it's a really uh, powerful story that we then got married a short period of time after that and now we're living happily ever after as a vegan family so I mean it's just a, a nice experience and it was all because of a dog that saved my life and whole food plant-based vegan nutrition.
2: I'm really interested in knowing what the feedback has been like from people all over the world who have seen your story online in the film, over 100 million times and who have read your hardcover book which has been translated into nine languages all over the world. What is the feedback like that you've been getting from these people who've been inspired and perhaps inspired to change their own habits and their lifestyles to make their own
4: changes? You know, it's it's the, the greatest blessing of this entire experience are the people that email me or send me messages either on Facebook or Twitter I'm easy to find uh, Eric O'Gray with an apostrophe in the O. So it's the greatest blessing that I receive are the messages of of hope and, uh, uh, you know, improvement and people who have changed their lives. Literally, I've received messages from thousands of people who have adopted dogs because of the book and who have uh, uh, embarked on their own journey of health and happiness through Uh, whole food, plant-based vegan nutrition. So I love hearing these stories and I would love to hear uh, those from your listeners also if anybody's been influenced by the book. And if anybody um, needs assistance in transitioning, I mean, to whole food, plant-based nutrition, I do publish a lot of stuff on my Facebook page and on my Twitter page. I'm, I, I think Twitter's for arguing, Facebook is for happy information and friends. That's how I use it anyway. Uh, so look me up on either one, and if I can be of any assistance, I'd be happy to provide you with information, resources. Uh, there's a lot of resources, both in the publication section of my website and also in the resources section of my website.
2: Well, your book goes into much more detail about all the developments and experiences that you had, including restarting a dating life and finding running as one of your passions. We'll refer our listeners to read the book for all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. But now I'd like to talk about a few other concepts that you've brought up in the book to expand upon. First, let's talk about the Western medicine and pharmaceutical industry, which you have a lot to say on because you came out of it. You came to a lot of realizations in this (laughs) 10-year experience and learning about how the drug and medicine industry go hand in hand was one of them for sure. As I understand, you were on a host of pharmaceutical medications as a non-vegan and inactive person. And when you changed, the need for all of these drugs went away. So what's up with the way our Western medical system works and why can't all patients be prescribed lifestyle medicine instead of pharmaceutical band-aids in this world where the top three killers are lifestyle diseases, cancer, heart disease, and diabetes? I wanna know more about that and why it is that only you came through this discovery from your own experiences and research And at the same time, we have millions and millions of people all over the world, and certainly in our Western area here in North America, who are suffering from diseases and illness when they don't have to be.
4: So um, I love this question. Thank you so much for letting me talk about this. I started out in high school. I'd never taken any science classes. Uh, The high school that I went to, the only requirement to graduate was general math, so I didn't really take any biology or any chemistry or anything like that. I was just looking to get out with a high school diploma. So shortly after high, so I never learned anything about nutrition or how to eat. I simply went through life eating what I saw everybody else eating, and if it was good for everybody else, it should be good for me. But over a course of years. I started out, after I got out of the Army, about 180 pounds, and I started just gaining weight gradually, year after year after year, and I couldn't understand why, because what I was doing seemed no different than what anybody else was doing. Fast forward to age 42, now almost 20 years ago, when I had a a shock, I went into a Nordstrom clothing store, uh, because every time that I... my clothes got too tight, I simply went and I purchased new clothes. And I went into a Nordstrom and they said, sir, I'm sorry, but we don't carry your size. And I went, what do you mean you don't carry my size? I mean, I, I'm I'm just like a regular person size. And they said, no, we don't carry uh, uh, your waist size anymore. And then he suggested that I go to a big and tall men's store, which was a really dramatic experience for me. Um, so I just kept from there, I just kept getting, adding about you know, a little bit bigger, you know, maybe uh, 10 pounds a year. And then suddenly at age 50, I'm 340 pounds with a 52 inch waist. And so I'm thinking, how is all this possible? And during this entire time, I'd gone from doctor to doctor to doctor, seeking a cure for my obesity and health problems. And every doctor that I went to, I would go to a doctor and they all had these same things in common. I'd go to the medical visit. The doctor would say, we, the doctor would spend five minutes with me. And as the doctor was talking to me, he'd be holding a prescription pad in, in his left hand, typically, and then a pen in his right hand. And as we were discussing whatever it was that I was in for that day, and I would really be saying, I want a solution to all of this. He would then listen for my chief complaint. Well, what is your your major problem today? What is bothering you the most today? And it would be well i 'm short of breath i uh, my obesity, whatever it was was the main issue. Um, he would then write me a prescription, either adjusting a current prescription, modifying a prescription, or uh, writing a new prescription or writing some uh, replacing some of the medicines that I was already taking and over this process over a course of twenty years, suddenly. I'm on 15 different medications, including 200 of units, 200 units of insulin a day, and as part of this meeting, at the end of the meeting, there would always be this last words. The last words of every doctor's appointment that I'd ever had were something to the effect of, I needed diet and exercise, but nobody ever told me what that was. So as I mentioned during our podcast, or pardon me, during our radio interview yesterday, Um, I suddenly ended up at a doctor one time who told me that, you know, in looking through my file, which was about four inches at the time, he said, there's really nothing further that I could do for you. And my suggestion is that you purchase a cemetery plot because you'll likely need one in the next five years. And that was a shock to me because they the medical profession had given up on me and the pharmaceutical profession uh, was was basically making Tremendous profits on me. I calculated at the time that my employer and insurance company were paying about $100,000 a year for my care. I was maxing out on my um uh, my health deductible, which is about $4,000 by before the end of January every year. And then so, you know, after that, it didn't really matter to me. It didn't cost me anything, but you know, it, this, this entire time I, I, I realized there has to be something wrong here. There has to be a better solution. And as I looked around, I saw more and more and more and more people in my situation. And as you mentioned, um, the research skills that I learned in law school were, were pretty significant. We learned how to use, uh, legal research products called Westlaw and LexisNexis, which are Boolean language research tools. And once you learn how to do research, whether it's as an attorney in the medical profession or whatever, you really like to get granular and get down in the details and figure things out on a technical basis as I did. So when I went and saw Dr. Preedy, as we discussed yesterday, and as I got healthy and after I lost all of my weight, which again was in three months, I was off all my medications, and in 10 months, I'd lost 150 pounds and was the same weight as when I'd got out of the Army at age 20, right? So all these things, I went back, and for my final appointment with Dr. Preeti, I asked, you know, this has worked so well for me. Why isn't every doctor in America shouting this from the rooftops? Why isn't this lifestyle medication prescribing healthy plant based nutrition? Why isn't this the primary course of care or the first stop for everybody that comes into every doctor's office in America rather than? These, medical, the, these medicines and this this uh, economic practice of seeing up to 20 patients a day and, and maxing out your patient visits to support your healthcare practice. And and so I decided that I really wanted to get to the answer of that and I wanted to come to the bottom of that question. And and so that it took me on a journey where I signed up for a local community, one of my local community colleges. I already had like a host of several different degrees, but I signed up for um, pre-med classes at a local community college. And over the course of two years in night school, I took every class needed as a prerequisite for medical school, which would be anatomy and physiology, uh, uh, chemistry A, B, and C, organic chemistry A, B, and C, and um, you know, nutrition, and, and really all the way up through physics. And what that gave me, in addition to my research skills, was a really good understanding of how my body worked. And what the, the answer to the question that I had before why isn't every doctor in America trying to promote lifestyle medicine rather than going to prescriptions as the initial treatment? I, I agree that medicine is very required uh, in many cases, and doctors are great at fixing bones and doing all these sorts of things that people have from like trauma and other things, but uh, why, isn't, why aren't doctors uh, instead? just prescribing diet and exercise primary health as primary health care. And so I really did a lot of research on this and I've, you know, over the period of time I've come to the conclusion that, you know, we have this, this massive health care industry in this country, we also have a massive pharmaceutical industry in this country, the uh, animal agriculture is supported by our tax dollars in, in terms of all the money that it gets from the federal government. And it's very, very, very difficult and challenging to change these institutions because there are millions of people whose livelihood depends on the continuation of these institutions. So it's really follow the money, in my opinion, and it's, um, there's no money to be made on dead people. So the healthcare industry, the pharmaceutical in- industry is in business to keep us alive for as long as possible but there's also no money in healthy people because me, the maximum thing that I do every year now is go to a doctor for a checkup, we get a full comprehensive blood panel, which I did last week, and which shows that as a 10-year vegan, I have no vitamin and nutrition deficiencies, um, I have no protein deficiency, I'm extremely healthy, and I don't supplement anything other than B12. So the problem now is that the healthcare industry in the pharmaceutical industry and the animal agriculture industry can't make any money on me. So there's no money in, 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 in dead people. There's no money in health, healthy people. The money to be made is in sick people. So I'm not saying that the system itself, uh, uh, intends to keep people sick, but that's the net result of it. That's what happens under the current systems, the triangle of animal agriculture, healthcare, and pharmaceuticals. And there's also, I wanna say, there's a tremendous number of good doctors that really are focused on lifestyle medicine and trying to get people off meds. And you can find doctors like that by entering your zip code under uh, apps and websites like plantbaseddoctors.org. You can find a vegan-friendly doctor who will help you get off of your meds and who will try to help you, you know, get your life back under control by using healthy food and nutrition rather than meds as a primary course of care. In your story,
2: you also really did discover that what you put into you, the food you put into you, is what can make you sick because you had a skin condition, psoriasis, and you actually went to a dermatologist to see how this could be fixed. You said, doctor, could it possibly be because of anything that I'm eating? Doctor said, no, 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 Uh, that's not possible. I'm going to give you this cream to put on. It may or may not work. And then you did your own elimination diet, and you found out that corn was the culprit, and you can't eat that. Can you tell us more about this, please?
4: Yeah, and this was was a fascinating situation because... It 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 really kind of proves that you know correlation is not causation, and that works really both ways. So in my situation, after I became vegan, I, I developed a severe case of psoriasis, which is an autoimmune disease, right? So I went to a, uh, a a medical doctor, a dermatologist, and I said I'm having this psoriasis, and I said what do you think could be causing it? And I said I'm certain it's something I'm eating, but I, I I'm racking my brains and I can't figure this out. And he said, "Well, what changes have you made?" And I said, "Well, I went from being an omnivore to being a vegan." And he said, "And he said, well, then your psoriasis started up after you became a vegan." I said, "Yes." And he said, "Well, go back to being an omnivore." And I said, "You don't understand. I was on—I was sick. I was 350 pounds on on uh, 100, you know, uh, 15 different medications with type 2 diabetes. I'm never—and I'm very happy with what I'm eating right now. I'm never going back to being an omnivore again." And he said, "Well." Then the best I can do is prescribe, um, you know, some sort of steroid-based cream for you, and that's all you could do. So he basically wrote me a prescription for industrial-strength steroid-based cream that I never got filled because I didn't want to put my body through that. I, I'm committed to find the real way, and so I then uh, went through an elimination diet with Doctor Preeti back down to like starting out with I think rice and peas it was, and so. How an elimination diet works is you can find if your body is having a problem with certain foods, if you start out with things that are almost impossible to be allergic to, and like rice and peas would be two of the rarest allergic reactions. So if you start out with a diet of rice, peas, and potatoes, and then the next week you add tofu, and then you're starting to add other products, and you're adding only one or two items a week to your diet, and then when you're continuing down the road and you're adding like additional items and you get a flare up, then you know exactly what is causing the flare up. And that happened to me with corn. And then after I eliminated the corn, the psoriasis went away completely. So it turned out that I was allergic to corn and I never knew it. And the reason that I developed psoriasis from corn after I went vegan that I didn't notice before is because I hardly ever ate corn as an omnivore, and because I was eating now, uh, you know, instead of just eating seven seven different animal products like, you know, pork, uh, chicken, beef, fish, uh, dairy products, et cetera, instead of just eating seven different animal products and bread, which is kind of like what uh, many omnivores do, I was eating among the 20,000 different edible plants that are available on Earth. So my my diet was much more varied. So I was being exposed to many more things that I'd never eaten before. And then I found the culprit. And by eliminating that, I'm the healthiest 60-year-old person that I know.
2: That's incredible, Eric, as your whole story is. But now I'd like to get back to Petey because he is what originally incited this whole story. Sadly, Petey is no longer with us, but you believe that Petey and now Jake the Black Labrador were meant to be in your life. You realize that a dog and you go together, it's simply meant to be, and I can certainly relate to that sentiment as well. Can you speak to us more about this belief and the bond that you've found between canines and humans as perhaps one of the deepest familial bonds that we humans can have with other species?
4: So the thing, I started out as a vegan for self-interested health, personal health reasons, but Petey turned me into an animal rights vegan. And the reason that it did was because I'd never had a relationship with, with an animal before. And I found that when I adopted Petey and we just had a complete bond from the heart, like nothing that I'd ever experienced before, I could no longer eat Petey than I could a pig. We had a a rather prophetic experience. We went to a farm park where uh, Petey was on a leash and we walked over to a fence and there were some pigs behind the fence and it was just a farm park. And so Petey stuck his nose through a fence and then a pig came up and he put his nose on Petey's nose. And then they were like friends and I thought, how could I ever, how could anybody eat one and love the other? You have to love both. So that had a profound change in my life and uh, At that moment, I became um, uh, an animal rights activist as well, and I'm very proud to be one today. So that dog, and just as part of this, you know, I need, I realized then that I need a dog in my life all the time, and for the rest of my life, I'm going to be adopting dogs from uh, animal shelters because my life is incomplete without one. Once you have a really strong relationship with a dog and it, it's kind of almost um, – uh, what was that James, James Cameron film with the blue people where – Avatar? Avatar, yes, where they, they show a relationship between the men and the, – or the, 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 the people creatures and then the flying creatures where they're absolute connected and they're thinking alike. And one is there for the other and they both got each other's back and they're completely in sync and connected. That's how I am with dogs. And with with, uh, Petey before and Jake now, it's a situation where Jake hassles me until I take him out for his morning run. And and so he basically, he's my accountability and workout partner, and I wouldn't be able to do it without him. So Jake and I have all these wonderful adventures. We do all this stuff together. We go on running. He uh, can run at age nine. Jake is vegan also because together with a, uh, uh, a plant-based veterinarian, we designed a high-protein balanced vegan diet for Jake, and I supplement that also with uh, the vegan dog food that I feed him called V-Dog. And, you know, people often think, well, can dogs be vegan? Yes, they can, because uh, dogs like bears, pigs, and humans are omnivores and can exist healthfully on a balanced vegan diet, and I think even more healthfully than on the, uh, uh, the unhealthy products with all the fillers and all the mixtures that are currently available commercially for dog food. And so Jake is a nine-year-old black Labrador who does not have a single gray hair, his muscles ripple when he walks, and he can complete a full marathon with me. So for anybody who's going to tell me that it's not healthy to feed a dog a vegan diet, my dog can run farther and, and faster than your dog at age nine. And his diet is veterinarian approved, so I'm okay with that.
2: And that's great. I love hearing about vegan dogs. So Jake is your new best friend now for two years. He's a black lab, and he's a long-distance runner, just like you. So you've just qualified to run the Boston Marathon next year in 2020. Big congratulations Mm -hmm. on that and for the amazing marathon times you have already been achieving. And 10 years ago, would you have ever fathomed that this would one day be your life? As a last message here, can you dispel some words of advice that you have for our listeners today who have been inspired by your story and want to find their connection with animal adoption and healthy vegan living as well? What do you recommend? Where should people start? I think they should definitely read your book. But what final advice do you have for our listeners?
4: Ten years ago, I couldn't walk through an airport without stacking Tylenol, Advil, and uh, opiates just to be able to make it through the airport uh, relatively uh, with an amount of pain that I could actually get through. My knees hurt, my feet hurt, my back hurt. I mean, every part of my body hurt, and I couldn't really walk more than about 100 yards, so it was excruciatingly painful. And now to be able to run 26.2 miles with uh, a decent time, I I time qualified for the Boston Marathon three times this year. Um, My best time this year was three hours and 36 minutes for 26.2 miles. So to be able to do that at age 60 is uh, compared to how I was 10 years ago. I mean, I am now half the age that I was 10 years ago, if that makes sense. And I look a lot younger too. So uh, that's wonderful. Now, as far as like your listeners and, and what I would like to suggest to everybody, if you or you have a family member in my previous condition, reclusive not leaving the house, really obese, on all kinds of medications. It's not going to get any better, and it's very quickly going to get worse. And the way to take action, you've got to reverse the trend. You've got to start by doing something differently. And I I, I talk to people and encourage them all the time. Life is hard, and it requires change. And the first change that you want to make is you want to find a plant-based coach somewhere who can help you through this transition. And then the second thing you can do, and you want to do it with your doctor's participation if you're on a lot of meds right now, and if your doctor's telling you not to go plant-based, just get a new doctor. And there's lots of vegan-friendly doctors and plant-based doctors that will help you through this process. So the, the most important thing is if you are lonely and you're sitting at home and you're not going outside and you don't have any friends anymore, you need to go adopt a dog. From your local shelter. And let me give you some advice real quick. The dog is going to love you. It's going to be happy. It's going to be overjoyed to see you. It's going to make you feel good. The dog will just fill your heart in a way that is not filled right now. It's going to want to cause you to live and improve your current situation. And that's the greatest thing that I can tell you. But when you go and adopt a dog, please, I'm begging you, do not purchase a dog from an animal pet store or a breeder. There are three million dogs and cats euthanized in the United States every year in shelters because they can't find homes. The shelters are overfilled. And people say, well, I want to get I want to get a purebred dog. Well, then just go to your shelter because 25% of the dogs at your shelter are going to be officially purebred dogs that were purchased for Christmas. And then the person didn't want to train them, so they basically gave them up after the dogs started eating their furniture and their shoes and everything. And when you adopt a dog at a shelter, you're getting a dog that is going to be the least work possible. Don't adopt a puppy. A puppy, for an inexperienced dog owner, is like dealing with a two-year-old child. They're going to run around your house, they're going to bite your hand, they're going to tear up your furniture, they're going to eat your couch, they're going to do all these things that you don't want them to do, and it's going to require training and work to be able to get them to the situation that they're a a fun member of your household, like having, you know, living with a 30-year-old person. That takes a lot of work and it takes time. So if you go to your shelter and you purchase an adult or better yet, senior dog, if you adopt an adult dog, that dog is gonna know that you saved their life. That dog is gonna look at you like the greatest person who's ever walked the earth. They're gonna love you with all of their heart and that dog will change your life And the other main benefit is, that dog's already gonna be potty trained. They're not gonna pee or poop in your house. They're way past the point that they're trying to express themselves by tearing things up with their mouths. And they're they're basically gonna be a joy to have around and they're not gonna require any specialized training or knowledge to be able to deal one with if you've never had a dog before. So the other very important thing to know is that when you go adopt a dog at your local shelter, you're not only saving one dog, you're saving two dogs because in addition to the dog that you just saved, you opened up a space for another dog and that's a blessing. And you know, you are, you know, it's, it's great karma. And I mean, it's, it's what you want to do. So please consider adopting a dog, get an adult dog and support your local shelter. And if you can't adopt a dog, what can you do? Can you maybe make a small donation to your local shelter or, can you go down and volunteer? Because if you volunteer, when you give of yourself freely without any expectation of reward or benefit, that is how true happiness is created, according to all the major world religions. And I mean, I, yeah, if if you want to be happy, do things selflessly for other people, and then you'll truly you'll experience true happiness. And the best way to do that is by volunteering at your local shelter.
2: Thank you for speaking with us today about your loving, incredible and motivational story about forming a special bond with a special dog named Petey and now Jake, who you have in your life and also for advocating for plant-based nutrition and helping people achieve their optimal weight and happiness. Thank you for the positive difference that you make in this world. Eric's updated paperback book, Walking with Petey, the dog who saved my life has just come out this month and is available at bookstores for purchase. You can also find Eric. Eric and the work he does at ericinpd.com. Thank you, Eric. I hope to be in touch with you again soon and
3: have a great day.
4: Thank you for your kindness and hospitality.
3: Thank you. You've been listening to Animal Voices here on 100.5 FM, Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, BC, Canada, unceded Coast Salish territories. Join us next Friday, November 29th at noon. Next week's show will be focused on vegan musicians. I'll have my colleague and friend, violist Tony Kastelic on the show. He and I are two of the first musicians in Canada to use chorus bow hair, an innovative synthetic bow hair for string instruments that is entirely animal-free. We'll be discussing our experiences using. Using it, why we decided to switch away from using horsehair on our bows, and what it's like being vegan professional musicians in Vancouver. We here at Animal Voices want to connect with you online. Visit our website animalvoices.org, where you can stream past shows and download them as podcasts. You can also see our show blog there with detailed links and subscribe to us on iTunes. Stay in touch with us on Facebook and Instagram at Animal Voices Vancouver and on Twitter at Animal Voices YVR. And now we'll leave you with a song. This is Musicians for a Cause with Choose Me. Stay tuned for Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Thank you for listening to Animal Voices today and remember to be kind to the animals.
1: I was born in a back alley About a year ago My mama was a stray like me Where she is now, I don't know I've been chased and I've been yelled at I've lived most my life in fear But you can call me lucky Since I wound up here Choose me I'm a good dog, I don't bite And I'd love to fall asleep Beside your bed every night Choose me I'm looking for a home And I'll be the best friend You've ever known Wait and see Choose me Well, I was cold and wet and hungry I was living on the street I had to go through garbage cans Just to find a bite to eat Then one day a man caught me I admit I was afraid But they cleaned me up and fed me Then they put me in this cage Choose me I'm a good dog, I don't bite And I'd love to fall asleep Beside your bed every night Choose me I'm looking for a home And I'll be the best friend you've ever known Wait and see Choose me People come, people go, and I hope you're the one who just can't say no. Take me home, won't you please choose? a home, so won't you please choose me. I was born in a back alley about a year ago.